0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space in Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Audrey Ching. Audrey is the Chief Technology Officer at Imager, the first vision-only, white-label, autonomous checkout solution that retailers can own, operate, and scale themselves. Before joining Imager, she was the CPO at Snapcoms, and Everbridge company. At the same time, Audrey was also the head of global UX for all of Everbridge's products, working closely with the CTO, Dr. John Maeda. Prior to Everbridge, Audrey was the VP of product at Pushpay, the world-leading digital engagement and giving platform for churches, a huge supporter of the New Zealand product and tech communities audrey has been a co-organizer of product tank auckland facilitated product workshops for startups through new zealand trade and enterprise and served for several years as the vice chair of the new zealand high-tech awards in 2019 audrey received her own award recognized by leading woman in product as the product leader of the year for australia and new zealand and yes they are two separate countries A clear communicator and a passionate product person, Audrey has been invited to deliver talks at UXDX Asia-Pacific and Mind the Product and has been a repeat guest on the Fearless Product podcast. And now she's here with me on Brave UX. Audrey, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Brendan. Thanks so much for having me. It's so great to be here.
0: It's really great to have you here, Audrey, and of course we are, we're both Auckland residents, as far as I'm aware, still. Yes. And we that's are. unusual. And this is a, this is a remote conversation, even though we both live in the same place. <laughs> Maybe we should figure that out for next time. But really, really good to have you here. I was curious about the move that you've recently made. You've gone from a, a CPO role into a CTO role. Is that a meaningful difference in the day to day reality of those titles? Is there is there anything? that is massively different from from one to the other.
1: Yeah, I think I think the main difference I see is, you know, caring for a much broader group of Product develop, like product developers, product you know product builders, and I think I've worked really closely with engineering in all my past roles, and had a really fantastic relationship. And I think now I have the opportunity really to do something that I really love, which is actually you know forming and helping to build a cross functional relationship between all of those groups of product design, product management, and engineering. And I think that's really what this role sort of brings together is really helping Imager to you know build a really strong uh, uh, team that can work really well together as we see our growth going forward into the future. And I think that's a really exciting thing. And I think moving from product to technology and overseeing a, lot, a broader scope uh, is really definitely a challenge for me uh, and you know, some learning for me as well.
0: You've been in the role now, I think you said around four or five months when we are off here. Yeah. What have you found has been the, the biggest learning or hurdle that you've had to overcome moving from that product context into that wider technology context?
1: Yeah, I think you know working with engineering and then uh, caring and maybe stewarding and shepherding uh, engineering is a, is quite a big difference for me. Um, and I think you know what I learned is that having s- such strong uh, relationship with engineering and having such wonderful friends in in the engineering space has helped me to kind of learn and also understand what creates great engineering culture and help to sort of drive and build um, build upon uh, that culture here at Imager. Um, I think it, what's been hard and surprising. I think, well, I think the tech stack is quite different. Uh, I've never not worked in a hardware product before. And I think, you know, learning sort of the uh, diversity of the technology is definitely uh, a learning curve for me, but one that I'm really enjoying and I have a really fantastic and capable um, and experienced team uh, that I'm loving working with.
0: So I mentioned in your intro that Images focused on that smart cart experience for retailers and it's a white label which they can own and deploy themselves. How much of your attention as the CTO is focused on the present versus the future of where the the business and the technology within the business is going?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you always have to be thinking about the future. And I think that's one of the important things with product management. And I think not getting into, I guess, what Marty Kagan and, you know, Rich Miranov talk about is like the feature factory, you know, and I think it's that idea that you have to be thinking and you really need to align your teams on, you know, where the product is going. So that as you think about what you're capable of uh, doing today and unlocking for your customers today? What's the next step for you? And where are we headed as an organization? And where are we headed to? Uh, what problems are we planning to solve for our, our retailers and our customers as we head forward into the future? So I think there is a balance between the two. Like, yes, you, you know, as a startup, you need to execute today. There are milestones that you want to hit. There are um, things that you need to accomplish today and problems that you need to solve today. But I think that you need to to be planning and thinking about solving those problems with the future in mind and i think that's important no matter what stage of product uh development or maturity you're at
0: Mm. we were speaking about the future just then i want to actually speak about the past a little bit your past now you've worked in tech now for about the past 15 years or so but it's not the first sector that you worked in you when you left uni you actually went to work as a lab scientist and then you moved into customer support roles and you even did a bit of a stint in product marketing and all of those were in healthcare what changed for you you know how did you end up getting into technology into product and into UX?
1: <laughs> yeah i guess that's a common question because i guess it's a, it's a, quite an interesting background i think my my background um, through university is in science uh in biology and zoology and a lot of the reasons i ended up studying those is cuz i was just really curious about how things are made you know, and I'm just, I think by nature, just a really curious person. And I think that's why um, originally uh, starting out as a scientist uh, was really interesting to me because, you know, it's that space of technology, problem solving and helping people. And I think those are the things that I still carry with me today. You know, and even when I think about like that, that career and all those moves, I really just took opportunities that I thought were actually really interesting to me where there were problems. And I was curious about how to solve things or curious about what that might be like. And I think, you know, having been in customer service, you really get to understand pain points, you know, of your customers, you get to be on the pointy end of, you know, someone who is unhappy or is facing some challenge with your service or your product. And I think it really gives you a lot of empathy. And I think that's really helped me as a product manager now, um, really uh, be able to be thinking about what the decisions that we make today and how they really impact other people, you know, and that it's not just a decision of, you know, one thing or another, it's actually something that could potentially affect someone else's life, make it better or make it worse, right? And so I think when you're making decisions, it helps you to be a little bit more intentional when you have some empathy for who you're building for or can put yourself in those in those shoes or been on the pointy end of your customer service team, you know, um, who are the ones that are going to field the questions, who are the ones that are going to be supporting your product at the end of the day? So I think, you know, in terms of my journey, I, as I said, like, I think I just took things that I thought were interesting. I don't know that maybe I didn't start out like other people who were like desperate to be a particular profession. I think I really found it hard to figure out where. Where I should land, I guess. And so, a lot of my earlier career was really about finding things that I was interesting and interested in and taking opportunities that presented itself. And I, and you know, I guess for like other product managers, funny enough, it's the way that I became a product manager. I joined a tech company who needed someone on their support on their support desk to support their customers. And uh, when the product manager decided to leave, they looked at me and said, "Hey, well, you want to give it a try?" And so um, that's how I got my first opportunity to become a product manager. And obviously, you know, having done it for more than 10 years now, really fell in love with, you know, solving problems and really helping people. And I think that's really at the heart of um, building products.
0: Well, it's obviously something that you do very well. And like recently, of course, you've changed scope of roles up into the CTO role as well. So you're clearly, this is a an excellent trajectory that you've been on. But you spoke about taking opportunities early on in your career that were interesting to you, which sounded to me like perhaps the path wasn't always clear. Did you ever feel, if you reflect back on, you know, 20-something-year-old Audrey, did you ever feel Lost or unsure or unclear what that next move should be and where it would take you?
1: Yeah, to be honest, I felt like that for a lot of my earlier career. I think because I really, when I was in school, I really was interested in science. And I think that uh, like just the whole, I mean, I I just really loved and really wanted to understand how things were made. And I think, you know, if you think about physics, biology, chemistry, a lot of that foundation is really like feeds that curiosity. Perhaps, like, I think looking back, if I had a little bit more direction, maybe I would have gone into something that fed that, but, you know, also ultimately led me to down a career path, rightly or wrongly, I guess. Yeah, I think there was, I think it's hard. I think, like, when you're younger and people are expect you to define a career for yourself, it, how do you make that decision when you haven't had exposure to the possibilities that are out there? You know, I mean, you have a lot of interest. You you probably have a lot more potential than you realize at that, at that time. I don't know, maybe some people have it all figured out. Um, but I certainly didn't. And I think it took me a while to figure out like what I was really interested in actually to find an opportunity that actually fed, I guess, the things that I really love, you know, solving problems, my own, uh, just genuine curiosity and obsessiveness around figuring out how things work, as well as, you know, helping people. And so yeah, I think, that's that's ultimately where I ended up. And I, so I do end up talking to a lot of, you know, maybe graduates that are asking about like where their career should go, you know, what should they do next? And I think it's always a hard thing, but I do feel like even no matter where you are in your career, I think we're so lucky that with technology, the way that it is, this is a time for reinventing yourselves. You know, jobs are like emerging all the time. Like new roles, new professions are emerging. There was a time where, you know, it was very little was known about product management in in tech. You know, unless you, perhaps you were in the Valley, you know, or very big tech centers. And I remember when I started out as a product manager, there was very few people that I knew of to turn to. I mean, I was lucky that. I mean, maybe a couple of years after I started in product management, the Mind the Product community started up a little bit and I could find some online blogs and resources. But I definitely, yeah, I definitely think that, you know, we obviously have like Marty Kagan and uh, Rich Mironov, who are sort of those early thought leaders in the space, but there definitely wasn't as much reach and much understanding. And certainly within organizations, I don't think there was very much understanding about the value of product management.
0: Yeah, yeah. It certainly has exploded recently. I think I was talking with Carlos, who's the CEO of Product School uh, last year, and clearly his organization and the range of other uh, organizations like that in the product space are experiencing massive growth. You also talked about the the questions that graduates would ask you about, you know, what should they do for a career and how should they go go about that? I couldn't help but think that it's almost as if we need to encourage them to ask better questions and to to think more deeply about what it is that they might do with their career themselves uh, it, see, it seems like that that sort of need to have some clear direction from someone who's you know perceived to be more experienced or whatever is um, sometimes to the detriment of people actually sort of sitting on their own figurative mountain and figuring a few things out for themselves, but totally understandable as well. You know, I think I would have done a similar thing when I when I was a graduate as well. So I have some empathy for them. Sitting on the figurative mountain though is something that you've actually done throughout your career. And I was listening to something that you were um, talking about and reflecting on your time at Pushpay. And I'm just gonna quote you now. You said the most important lesson is really about your own growth and the growth of the people around you and really challenging what your ideas of success look like. You really have to challenge the way that you're working and what you prioritize. So what did success look like for you when you first started at PushPay? And how did that change? You know, what was behind what I just quoted, you know, you saying, what was the thing that that made you realize that there needed to be something different going on here for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, your idea of success is that you could all like, well, my idea of success was always that no matter the challenge, how hard it is, you just work a little bit harder or just put in a little bit more and you'll come out the other side. But I think that the challenge like with push pay, you know, was it went through hyper growth, right? There was mm. no plateau where you can recover from like putting your foot on the gas, right? And I think, you know, the more you put on your foot on the gas, at some point you realize there's a floor, you know, <laughs> and mm. that the pedal doesn't go down any further, right? I think you can like, and I think if that is your if that's how you get through the difficult things it's like i'll just put in a little bit more it's okay i'll just like work a little bit harder and and see it through you soon realize that there are actually not enough time and that there actually is no reprieve right because the challenges get tougher the workload is piling, people are waiting for you. And in product, people are waiting for your analysis, they're waiting for your requirements, they're waiting for you to give them context about the problem. You know, like you're you're feeding a team of engineers, you're working with a team of engineers in those really early days, you know, it was really you, maybe one other, and you're all trying to like, you know, wrangle some sense into the roadmap, wrangle and get the work ready so that people understood, had good context for what they were building, why they were building it, and what were the things that we, the, the absolute scope that we needed to include apart in addition to that you're also trying to grow a team right so there's all these competing priorities that are happening and i think you soon realize that your method of success of getting to success of working harder doesn't work anymore and i think you uh, i've spoke before about that sometimes you hit a wall that you realize actually what i'm doing isn't working and i'm just drowning now or start i'm just treading water you know and i think it's just reevaluate and it's that moment where you're really reevaluating yourself and thinking about like hey how am I going to overcome this? What am I need to do? I'm either going to quit or I'm going to find a different way of working to get to overcome that challenge and overcome that barrier to get to success. And I think like PushPay was a really amazing opportunity for me to learn uh, because I think it really pushed you to your own limits. And at, at those limits, then you realize, actually, I need to change because what I'm doing isn't working. So I fundamentally needed to change the way I was working, how I prioritize what did, what did my you time. change?
0: Okay. Yeah. you prioritizing yeah. time.
1: Yeah. Prioritize. You have to let some fire. Like actually when well, my good friend said, you have to choose which fires to let burn, right? Mm. Like everything's on fire. Everything's a priority. So you need to choose. You need to make the choice now of like which fires you're going to let burn. And eventually that's what you end up doing is you end up saying like, what's the most important thing that I need to tackle? What's the most impactful thing? And you end up doing that. Right. And you have to allow some things to fall by the wayside and know that, it, you know, or, you know, if you're a perfectionist, maybe perfect isn't what you need to do. Maybe there is a point that is good enough. You know, and Are I you think a per- it's just perfectionist, responding. Audrey? I would say that I once was, but I think now it's a balance between, you know, what's optimal and, you know, trying to get the best result. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a little bit of balance, but of course, you know, there is a little bit of, you know, you know, wanting things to be perfect. But I think like, as we all know, in building product, you never build out, build what you actually had set out to build in your mind, I guess, or what you had originally thought about.
0: So it sounds like you can now sleep while there's a few fires burning.
1: Yes, depending on the fires.
0: <laughs> well, like you said, you get to choose what what the fires are that you let Yeah, burn. exactly.
1: Doesn't mean that they, you know, even if you're tackling, doesn't mean you don't worry about them.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think high performers suffer from not just the perfectionism. And and again, I'm generalizing here, but there's actually a like a a chemical reason why we enjoy the work that we do. And you can continue just to churn out more and more work and move on to the next thing on your list and you get a little high from it. But like you have been talking about, it starts to come at a cost, not just to yourself, but also the people that are around you. And I was curious around this time where you came to this realization about which fires you needed to let burn, what Role, if any, did your relationship and being a mother play in your decision to reevaluate how you were working?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. Um, you know, you, you reach a point where you, I think, you know, at that stage, it's really. You know, there's a point where your work does bleed into your personal life, right? Like, I mean, how you're feeling, what you have actually capacity for in your personal life. And I think when you realize that actually, I remember like even my first day at Push Pay, like working probably till like one o'clock. Past midnight, anyways, and my husband was like, "It's your uh, first day at work," you know. I was like, "I know," this (laughs) isn't starting well, (laughs) (laughs) you know. But I think, like, knowing that you have to have capacity for the rest of your life as well, you know, your family, your relationships, I think those things become important. But I think also, like, the probably, you know, while while that is really an important driver, I think the question is, is really, are you going to face the challenge, or are you not going to face the challenge? And if you are, then you definitely know it's not working. Right. And I think there is a decision point there that, yes, you need to get that balance in your life. But there's many ways to get that balance. The balance could be tap out. The balance could be keep going at what I'm doing and see if it works out or let's change the way I'm working and see if we can tackle this challenge differently to to, you know, get a different result or to get that balance. Right. So I think there are decisions and I don't think that any one of those is necessarily wrong. They could work for different people. You know, but I think that that is a choice that you need to make is like, is this the right opportunity for you? And if not, then it's okay to to tap out too, right?
0: Have you set yourself any boundaries? You know, you're an executive leader now of technology, which is encompassing, like you said, product and engineering and design. Like, Do you, in that C-suite role, do you now have clearly understood personal work life boundaries that you stick to? Or is this something that you regularly reevaluate? And it's more of a feeling that you check in with yourself on?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on like, it really depends on the organization. And I think maybe where what the the needs are and trying to balance that with my own personal life. I definitely know that I think set it, that you need to set boundaries. And there was a time where, you know, in the first startup that I worked at, you know, I was pretty much working almost seven days a week because of the hours of support for our customers, you know, I'm working really long hours, because we were here in New Zealand, we had customers in Europe, in the UK as well as in the US so I'd find I'd be working till midnight and then up early and then also working on Saturdays because we had US customers who wanted support so you end up finding that you don't end up with any work life balance because everything and the demands and you're obviously striving for success in your organization you know those demands sort of are bleeding and you know aren't 9 to 5 and so they do bleed into your personal life in that instance there you know I kind of set a boundary that like I'm going to close my laptop at you know you know, Friday night, and that's it. Be honest, you know what, I mean, what for the time?
0: <laughs> <laughs> 11 Maybe p.m. Not Friday.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, and, and if there was an emer- or something urgent on a Saturday morning, I would take care of it. But like, I think essentially saying like, hey, you know, the boundaries here. I think with Imager, for example, you know, they're like, we are pretty much opposite schedules in terms of working hours. And so uh, being available and being able to collaborate with my, uh, my team over in Europe is really important. And so it's more around setting dates that are generally okay for me to take meetings and dates, days where I say like, actually, these are the days I, I typically like to have off. So one, I can spend time with my family or two, I can catch up with my friends and people in the community, which is also really important to me. So it's just really about balancing and setting those expectations so that people don't drop things in my calendar on days that I'm not, I I really want to be doing something else. Right. And so it's just really trying to set those boundaries and making exceptions when you need to, and likewise making exceptions on those other, like in the reverse as
0: well. Yeah, not being too rigid about it, but actually knowing what you need to feel good about yourself and the work that you're doing and give your best to everyone, not just at work, but also at home. I do want to come back to push pay again. I'll touch on push pay a few times because I feel like push pay was for you and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it was quite a formative period of your career in which you experienced A lot of growth and a compressed amount of time. And you were saying you were reflecting on your time there again, and I'll quote you again. Uh, You said, when I took the responsibility for the first time of overseeing the UX research and UX design practice, being a product manager, I really didn't know how to lead the design team. I didn't know what was meaningful in their work. I didn't know what they valued. How did you go about clearing up that blind spot?
1: Oh, yeah. So that was really daunting because, I mean, I had worked alongside many amazing UX designers, but never really formally led a UX team. And I think the responsibility of caring for so many people, not only in like what they're going to do day to day, but actually helping them grow their careers is really, you know, uh, quite a responsible task. And so the thing for me was, one, was getting involved in the community. So I really embraced and and the community embraced me you know the ux community in auckland um, so joining the meetup groups making a lot of friends uh, and having a group of really close friends that were um of the discipline um, and also having a lot more one-to-ones and trying to build relationships with my designers directly um, and i think that was uh, the thing that really helped me a lot it was a lot it was a journey that i i went on i'm still on it you know what i mean I'm still trying to learn and still trying to make sure that i can support people in the proper way But I think it was through a lot of that, you know, going to meetups, meeting with people, talking to people about what was meaningful, listening to the topics that were coming up, being part of those panels as well, you know, providing the product management lens and then listening to the to the UX lens. Those things were really important uh, to me to actually have to build empathy for my team. Um, And really try and understand what they needed in order to be successful within our organization. And I think it really changed the way that I practiced because I didn't realize at that time how much was needed in terms of like what the challenges really were, which were how do I get the things that I'm concerned about that I've uncovered on the roadmap? How do I how do I get? involved in problems earlier like i am handed things you know these are typical problems that they i think we see through all uh, well not all maybe less mature uh, ux uh, organizations uh, with less mature ux practices you know and so there was a lot of work to be done there still in terms of like hey how do i find a voice for my team how do i get them a seat at the table and i think the great thing is that when you already have a seat, it's much easier to create space uh, for your team, and I think that helped a lot. I think in terms of bringing those voices, bringing the value of UX uh, into the fore within our development team, within our technology and development team, and then with the broader organization. So yeah, it was a really interesting journey, and still something that I. I work hard on and still like, but I very, very much value the experts. Like I've worked with so many amazing people, you know, uh, through the years, got coaching for my team, you know, all of, all of those things, knowing that like I have deficiencies in this area. Like I know that I, I, I've not studied, I'm not, I'm not the expert that, you know, expert leader, I guess that a team would love to have. But the thing I can provide is opening the doors to those opportunities to bring expert coaches in, to bring experts in, to actually provide resources, to suggest training. And um, I think having a rich community of people surrounding you and supporting you means that you have access to um, help when you need it um, and also um, suggestions as to how you might tackle some challenges.
0: This might be an unfair question, so you can tell me if it is, but I was thinking about this. I was thinking about someone moving from product into leading the design org or vice versa, but in, the, in, in this context, the one that you are operating in, and I realize that you've got a life experience of one here, but I'm still very much interested in your perspective. Should a product person be leading the design org or should a designer be leading the design org?
1: Yeah, I firmly believe that ultimately I would love to see a designer leading the design org and have their very own seat at that executive table. It doesn't always happen though, you know, and I think it, it's a journey. You know, and I think the, what I feel that I can provide is an opportunity to create space, to create growth within the organization, maturity and understanding. And your hope is always that one day to allow that UX organization to, uh, grow and be, be independent on its own and an equal partner. And that is always the hope, right? And I think like that you find though, like if that is not, or that, if that is not already there and that you don't have a designer UX, Uh, practitioner at the table is very hard to put someone in there without support and without a pathway. And so I think the idea for me is always that when I am trying to champion and bring UX in, it's really to create that pathway. And my hope is for one day that you can, that they will be able to have have the, that respect, have that understanding through the organization and be able to to stand on their own, much like uh, product and engineering are able to today. And there was a time where product, I mean, was in the same boat and we were always coming under engineering and still comes under engineering often, you know, and so you still see the same, the same level of hierarchy. But my personal opinion is, is that these all should be part equal partners in the conversation because they ha- we have very different perspectives. we we'll have different experience that we can, that can add value uh, to that conversation and to the way that we think about our product. And we think about um, the problems that we're solving.
0: Have you ever considered a career in politics, Audrey? That was very good.
1: <laughs> was it really it? <laughs> was very good. <laughs> no, no, politics, not for me. <laughs> hey,
0: speaking about politics and and some of the things that can go on in organizations, you know, you have spoken about this in the past, which is that observed tension that can exist between product and UX and this is something that plays out in various different ways for different reasons and probably none of them are actually are any good to be honest we're all working for one organization trying to create a great product or experience for our customers Uh, fighting I don't see how that helps but when were you first when did you first become aware of the tension that can exist between these two parts of the puzzle?
1: Yeah, I think it's a mixture of things. Like, I mean, I think I had people reaching out from the community, talking about some of the dysfunction within their teams, talking about some of the friction. I mean, I never experienced to the level that maybe some of the stories I've heard, like some some, uh, UX designers in the community had reached out and said that they actually ended up crying over a number of interactions that they've had with product and vice versa as well, you know, where you end up with this kind of fueled tension that happens. And, you know, and I maybe organizations experience it differently. Not all. I mean, that's probably a very extreme case. You know, normally this function is really about whose idea or, you know, who's going to do what, or are, is my, are my, like, I have valuable skill set and like, you're kind of encroaching on my area. Those are typically the the friction points that I often see, you know, and I think a lot of it comes out of misalignment, you know, in terms of the the goals or the objectives and also empathy and understanding for each other's roles. Right. And one of the the things that I, I firmly believe is one if we can align on the outcomes and understand the problems together and we start kind of together um, then we have a better opportunity for the teams to actually be working together because what i often see is that this function is coming from competition with each other of like whose ideas who can i be heard you know i mean so it's this idea of like jousting for position in a way and i think when we have a better understanding of what each each of us can contribute with our skill sets and experience and how that actually adds value to our common goal, then we have, I think I see a lot less of this dysfunction. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but I think you do have to start from a culture of trust. And I think if you don't have that inherent culture of trust where people are valued, then you have a much harder road to, to travel. And so you need to fix that first. And I think part of that is like, how do you demonstrate the value of product management how do you demonstrate the value of of ux design to maybe an engineering team that's never experienced good product management or a uh, great ux design before but had engineers say to me i didn't realize that was ux design if i had known that we would have hired one 3 years ago you know what i mean like so you know what i mean so like i think there is often that like and i still think that there is a misconception Maybe this is not everybody's experience, but I still think that there is a misconception about what UX design is, and I still hear a lot about like you know just the interface design and not thinking about interaction or the research um, component of it. And so, a lot of the work I do when I'm bringing UX into an organization is educating people, uh, educating an exec team, a leadership team, an engineering team about actually the value of UX design and what actually UX design is, and pointing to a lot of those things, and then bringing in. Quite often, I will bring in a coach if, if depending on the maturity. But bringing in a, a proper coach to actually help people understand and actually, I think the best one is UX research. It can bring everyone together, you know. UX research and helping everyone build a foundation and understanding of what UX research is starts to help people to build an understanding of UX design practice as a whole. Um, and I found that that was really valuable. So I brought coaches in previously to, you know, give some workshop training to engineering, customer success, marketing, product. Uh, design itself, you know, and so just getting that cross functional team together to understand, because I actually think the skills in UX research are really valuable to a lot of people, you know, I mean, how to ask, like, really open questions, unbiased questions, you know, I mean, these are helpful for everybody. And when people understand the methodology, then there is much more trust that is built in the practice itself and the results that you're getting, and the information that people are telling you about the problem. Um, so I found that that has been an extremely helpful tool in kind of breaking down silos, um, helping to form transform maybe some dysfunctional relationships into more functional relationships through that level of understanding.
0: You touched on UX research there and how helping a wider group of people understand the methodology and how it all works and doing that in order for them to see more clearly what the value of the research piece of UX is. And I also understand that you're a bit of a big believer in democratizing the research for that reason. Jump in, if, jump in if I'm putting words in your mouth here. And I'm going to quote you again now. You've said, it shouldn't really matter who's doing the interviewing. We should feel confident that what we find and what we observe and what we document is of good quality because we've aligned on our practices. So there's a lot. there's a lot in there, actually. I'm tempted to go down the track of whether it's a good or a bad thing to democratize research and maybe we'll come back to that. But where I wanted to go first was what does being aligned on practices look like and how have you helped your teams to get there previously?
1: Yeah, I think, again, I think there's misunderstanding about research, right? People think you just create questions and you go out you ask people those questions, random people, and then you go, great, Like, look at the results. I go, oh, look, this one guy told me this. You know what I mean? And I think that there's a misunderstanding, again, on what UX research is and what are proper practices. And so, you know, there is a craft here. And so I think my statement is maybe I do believe in democratized research, but I do believe that there are experts. And we need those experts and there's not enough of those expert researchers. And so what I mean about that is that there is a craft and we all need to understand what that craft is. We don't all need to be experts, but we do need to understand that is a craft with experts. Um, and my thought is always that I always hire someone, an expert, you know, to come in and actually run their practice. But because there's not enough people, I believe that we can train people to actually be better interviewers, to actually learn how to write a protocol you know, to actually learn how to synthesize. And we're not, and you know, people aren't going to practice perfect out of the gate. But if we're able to share that knowledge and have experts train people, then we can get better results, we can reach more people, the more people we have that can ask better questions, that can follow a protocol that can follow a practice that we can believe in. Now, they might not be expert interviewers, like, you know, some interviews are amazing, they know how to take a conversation, pinpoint something that's really interesting, and then take the conversation that way, you know, but you know, not everybody's going to be at that, that level of maturity. But if we can say like, hey, let's write a script together. Okay, let's like work through how we might interview somebody. What's what's the right way to do this? And so typically I will bring in an expert coach. Like I've usually shy before. Matt Gould is amazing. He'll come in and train the team. So we might train a cross-functional team because product managers want to talk to customers as much as UX designers want to talk to practices. How do we resolve this problem? How do we like, who should own the customer? Who should be talking to them? right? (laughs) Well, we can all be talking to them, right? But let's align on how we think about talking to them and what the purpose is, right? Product managers talk to customers for various reasons. Might be for product discovery, might be for understanding the user's perspective and the challenges that they face, but it equally might be a sales conversation. Now, sales conversation and a research interview are completely different things. One is a very biased conversation, where you're trying to convince a customer about why your product is the way it is and how amazing it is. And the other one is more about learning, you know? And it's not that you can't learn much from a sales conversation, you're learning different things, you know? And so I think learning that distinction that one conversation is not equal to to another is really important. So I really try to just align people on, you know, understanding that there is a practice here that in order to get good results, you have to align on, a process. You have to respect that this is actually a profession, a craft with experts. And that's why it's important to have those experts guiding, coaching, and helping people to lift their skills uh, in conducting interviews. Um, so what I also mean about democratizing research is really on also on the results side, is being able to share those results, being able to talk openly about them, not just with the product or the technology team, but with the wider organization. Why do we want to do this? It's because we want everyone to have the same understanding that we have about our customers and our users. And it also demonstrates actually the value that understanding of our customers and the results that we get by making better decisions throughout the organization means that we all perform better as a as a whole organization. And in addition to that, it helps build confidence in the practice itself. I guess maybe that's, a, I don't know if that's a long answer, but I guess that's the way I think about about user research. Um, one thing that we have done specifically at PushPay, was because we've, we had practice from, from the beginning. And I learned a lot from Jasmine Wilkinson. And we had a, a really amazing UX practice there. Was that over time, we were able to train our customer service team, our customer success team, really on how to ask better questions. Because we were always getting the customer wants XYZ feature. And it's like, why? Why do they want it? I don't know. And so it's like, okay, well, we can't really do anything with that. So you need to go and find out why they want the feature. You know, let's and like you end up with a feature list, right? Like all everything that's logged is always about features, right? And so you're always the first question is why do they want it? What are they doing? How are they doing that today? Like these are all the questions that came up. So we started to train our customer success team to ask why, you know, to ask, hey, why, well, why do you want that? What are you doing today? How are you handling it? You know, how are you overcoming that today? Oh, okay. You know, and sometimes like what they're asking for is really a band aid to another problem. You know, and so it's just that idea of like, can we get people to, you know, ask better questions? You know, understand that there is a a proper, uh, like, the more that we can get people to ask better questions, the more understanding, better understanding we have within our organization about who we're building
0: products for. I really like that. And that's something that has come through loud and clear on some of the previous things that you've put out there. I'm curious to go into the communication of the findings from research, regardless of whoever's actually run the research that you've done in orgs, where you've had senior leadership or other departments, maybe it was engineering, I know at your time and push pay engineering was under another VP or managed elsewhere. How did you structure those are they presentations or were they conversations? Like, how did you set the stage for, for them? And was there any difference in the way in which you would communicate interesting insights or findings from research, depending on who it was that you were talking to?
1: Yeah, I think, yes. So I, de- I definitely think, like, the audience... It matters, like, I guess what, what you're going to surface up and how long you'll have their attention span for, right? But certainly for engineering, I guess, which is one of the main drivers of the reason why we're con- conducting research is to build better products. We always invited engineering one to sit in and be observers in our interviews so that they could listen firsthand to how uh, customers or users who are feeling about our product or about a problem, uh, just trying to bring everyone closer. Like now that's a data point in isolation, right? But what we're talking about is like when we do the synthesis and we have the final results, we typically would do a presentation, right? Talking about like who we talked to, who is in the group, what were we trying to accomplish, what our methodology was, and ultimately what those outcomes are, maybe what the recommendations might be, what problems we might solve from there. So we definitely do a wider presentation, definitely not locked down. Often we would share some of this. Uh, with our customer success team, you know, keeping uh, their users anonymous, but sharing the insights that we found as a group, what patterns we saw, what problems we think we might solve. We thought it was equally important for the team who are supporting our product to really understand, you know, what what insights we were getting from these interviews. And they were quite often helping us recruit people. So we wanted to for them to see the, the fruits of their labor too, right? You know, and I think then you get a really engaged organization in helping you build a really strong Uh, research practice. Um, So from there, we sometimes we would go into like, you know, after sharing, uh, sometimes we would uh, take those and go into co-design, which is another great method method that I love because it really engages people in thinking about the possibilities. Now they're not designing the product. We're thinking about how might we solve some problems, you know, and these are really just different perspectives from different groups from how they see the problem. We've had like data scientists there, engineers there, You know, and we've done this also with our CS team as well, you know, having product managers and a mixed group of people really to see what ideas come to the fore, you know, and to like talk about why did we think about solving the problem that way. It's a really interesting way to get people engaged in the problem and the context and really thinking about, you know, broadening our uh, broadening the perspective on what solutions actually come to the table. So I found that those methods were really helpful in sharing the insights, sharing the problem, uh, sharing the burden of how we might solve those problems.
0: You know, that co-design that working with other departments or experts within the business to help imagine what the future of the product might look like in that context that you were just speaking of, how did you take the outcomes from those workshops? Maybe there's one that you've done recently that you can think of and move it into something that was more tangible for product or UX to work with so that the, I suppose, so that there was a, uh, a meaningful impact or outcome and not just theater from involving these other stakeholders in the product and the design?
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's typically not me who is uh, doing the presentation or the co- running the co-design workshops is usually led... Uh, by our researcher and our, our designer leading the, the program of work. So um, it would be typically those two um, experts that would be sort of working with the team on this. But I think from there, as we kind of like talked about the ideas, voted on the ideas, and as we thought about how what we might solve and what the scope would be, it would typically, there was typically a lot of work with the product manager talking about what we must solve for and how we might solve it and incorporating those ideas and then there's a presentation back of like hey here's, here's some ideas of what we thought how we might solve this problem you know fitting into the requirements that we had made so it's really not just design going off but working really closely again with the product managers and then also you know getting consultation with engineering about how we might solve the problems and hey if we wanted to do this what would that look like was this feasible you know and so it's that can like, it's that designing together in a way, in the sense of you know the designer is looking at what the interaction might look like, what might solve some of those problems, but then also you know working together with the product manager to think about like, is that going to solve the problem? Are we going to hit on you know being able is the, is the user a really? Going to get value out of this, and then also looking at the feasibility side. So, I don't think it's ever this ta da moment where we're like, ah, oh, look, from the co design, amazing, look, you know, done this amazing design out let's go build it. You know, it's that continuous process of collaborating all the way through. And I think when you have that openness and that way of working, um, you find that that feedback loop is really tight and that everybody becomes aligned, and there's less selling of the design at the end, if that makes sense, you know, or less like ta da moment um, in the design.
0: Listening to you talk about this, the sort of interaction with the other parts of the organization, it's making me think of power dynamics. And those are things that exist in all human endeavor right there's always politics where you've got more than one person you're going to have politics. I'm um, recalling and I won't name any names but a conversation I had I believe it was on the podcast so if anyone else is listening can remember you'll know what I'm talking about um, someone telling me that when the VP of sales in a really large company would get pushed into a bit of a corner or not get their way with a request through to product for something that they perceived their clients or customers were asking for, they'd just turn around and ask the person who was saying no. So how much money have you made for the company today? Because they could tell them down to the second just how much sales had contributed to the organization's success. So I'm I'm curious, you know, when you're in that position of CPO and perhaps now as CTO, and you've got someone like a CEO or someone who's running the sales org coming to you and saying, you know, we really need to build this thing in our product. It's going to make us more successful and keep our clients happy how do you handle that situation because i've heard you say before that product development is not an infinite resource so when i when i or someone like me if i was in that position comes to you and sort of throw my weight around and ask for those things what do you say to me
1: yeah i think you're exactly right like i mean product resource is finite and it's always an or so we don't do something else in order to do that one so we need to decide which one's more valuable you know, and it's not, all, it's not always scientific that we can just say on the dollar amount. But I think, you know, when you do have that data in front of you, it's much easier. Like quite often, you know, you can have a list of customers who need a certain solution or want a certain problem solved. You can quantify that. And I think having that data in front, because then you're asking, that's great. Like looking forward to getting that deal. But tell me, you know, like, is that more valuable than this other thing that we're working on that's already, you know, has X amount? value associated with it and that could be cost reduction it could be net new sales etc you know fortunately I've never had anyone Ask me, you know, how much money have you made for the organization? Maybe you have to go back and look at all the revenue you've created through your product. I don't know,
0: but um, (laughs) that's a particularly brutal question. (laughs) I don't think I've heard of anyone else ask anyone that, but that is rough. Yeah,
1: it's it's a pretty, it's a pretty ruthless. I think, like you know, it's really important that you can substantiate and understand how you're making decisions, right? Like at the end of the day, we're here to create value for our customers and for our business, right? And we need to be, as product managers, we need to be assessing what that value is, like. You know, the thing is, is that we know that our users and our customers have a lot of problems, but the ones that we need to solve are the ones that are value creating both for them and for your business. Like if you want to be here to solve more problems for them, you've got to be value creating also for your business. And I think it's really important that you're looking at the value of everything that you're building. If you don't understand the why behind it and how it drives value, then you need to question why is it on your roadmap. One of the tools that I have used um, or that I have suggested to my teams where this has become a problem is I quite often suggest using Lean Canvas because Lean Canvas kind of tells you like everything on a page, just in a really summary format. But the great thing about it is it talks about like the cost and the revenue, um, how your success metrics, which are really important, you know, and those success metrics really lead into those conversations that you're going to be having with sales, particularly when you're making trade-offs between one thing or not. Now, the thing that sales came to you with might be actually the most important thing. And maybe you are going to bump the roadmap, but it's really understanding how you're going to make those trade-offs and actually what the timing should be. Because any, like if the work is already in front, Light, then any disruption to your engineering team is really inefficient, right? So maybe you're gonna say, hey, yeah, we're gonna wait till after what that one's done. But it's really that understanding of trying to understand the value that you're creating with what you've got on the roadmap.
0: Earlier in our conversation, you spoke about the challenge that UXs sometimes face in getting their ideas on the roadmap. How much of that challenge which I realize is quite difficult to quantify, but how much of that challenge is actually a result of UX's inability to speak the language that product understands?
1: Yes, I think it's a lot. So I think that is probably the, the cause of, of that misalignment is like not understanding how the work or the problems that they're thinking about contribute to the, maybe the product metrics. You know the outcomes that we're seeking in the product and I think this is one thing that I, I I coach a lot of designers on is about storytelling and about thinking about from a different perspective like hey who are you trying to convince what's meaningful and important to them how does the what you're thinking about influence uh, that you know and so it's really about reframing reframing the problem a little bit and and also thinking about the storytelling so a lot of like when we uncover things, it's like, how is this impactful? So like, great, if we've got those numbers, but, you know, how is this impactful? How will it make a difference? You know, and so it's the idea of one, how will it make a difference for the business? You know, which is always important. How will it make a difference for the customer? You know, and I think understanding those two things and trying to communicate how it moves the needle overall. Uh, for the product is important. I think when you have more of a partnership model between product and design, they can work together to come up with those metrics. So you know, UX designers don't have to feel alone if it's not an area that they have expertise in yet. Their product managers should be helping them like, hey, here are the product metrics. Here's the needle that we're trying to move. So when we think about this journey, what do we think influences that metric like how will we drive maybe adoption so we're wanting to get x net new users you know over this time period like how does the journey that we're creating actually help us to deliver on that and so when you look at it from that perspective you can kind of see that the product metrics might be the overarching metrics and those ux metrics are kind of those that are kind of feeding into and helping to drive the overall product metrics so i think that they're not in i don't think that they're in conflict with each other i think they're actually you know working together
0: that's really interesting and and obvious too, not not in a, not in a bad way in terms of what you've said, but just in how I hadn't been thinking about things like this prior. I wonder how much of the challenge that UX has in establishing that seat at the table in some perhaps mid-sized organisations is to do with product actually being the ones that are setting and in control of setting the context. So. By establishing product metrics and generally being higher on the hierarchy, there's really no room for design, if all designers is coming in at a tactical level and trying to ladder up into the overall product metric.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, to be honest, I think there's ability to influence those product metrics. Like when you think about the overall objectives for the organization, if design can be engaged earlier and to be thinking about those overall and, you know, thinking at a slightly more strategic level, thinking about those overall outcomes for the business product and design could actually be working together to set those metrics. And I think like there's some really great material that I've read, like when I was trying to understand UX metrics um, and how that overall fit into the way I was thinking about metrics, like J- Jared Spool has like put out some really great content that really helped to shape my early thinking around UX metrics. And he put, I, I think he wrote a post once about why, I, I don't know what it was called. It was something along the lines of why UX designers should Uh, Speak like our, speak like executives or something along those lines. But it was really about metrics, right? Thinking about those overarching metrics for the business. And when you think about, like, you know, what the problems that are uncovered, the insights that are uncovered in design and how those actually influence what we're trying to achieve in the overall business, you can really influence those product metrics. I don't think that those product metrics have to be set by the PM. I think that they are governing them and making sure that we are, like, trying to move the needle on those. But, like, like all of product management, you're trying to get the ideas and get the perspectives from different groups of people to try and set what where we should be targeting, right? And so I think that UX has that ability to help drive and set those product metrics.
0: Maybe a couple of months ago, I had a conversation with Christian Crumlish, who wrote uh, product management for UX people. And he comes from a, a very interesting background, actually, but broadly design. And in the last I suppose, decade or slightly more transitioned into more of a product-based role. I couldn't help but think after that conversation with Christian and now hearing you speak today, Audrey, whether or not designers need to be looking more pragmatically at their careers, particularly outside of big tech and sizing up product as a potential sideways or upward step in their trajectory, if they're interested in a leadership role, if they're not actually able to get it at the scale of the organisation that they're currently working at, you know, whether there's a valid role there for people who come from a design background to skill up on some of the product sides of things and uh, and actually take that forward in their career.
1: Yeah, I definitely like can a UX designer become a product manager? Absolutely. Right? Like, but should that be the way I'm not so certain, right? Like, I would really love for—I mean, maybe I'm just being an idealist, but I would really love Go on, for. why not? <laughs> I would really love for designers to be able to in, like have much more strong influence by being designers than necessarily needing to be product managers. I definitely think it's helpful to you know when design when you when you have the aha moment with designers that they really understand like how to you know, work through the value for the product and work through the value for the business, then you see a lot more like of design that can be, you know, because I think you you sometimes see like when someone is in like is focused on like this outcome of where we need to go and it has to be this, but not layering in actually the, the pragmatic side of like, hey, it has to work for the business. We need something optimal. We need time to market, et cetera, et cetera. But when you see sort of that, the, the, the penny drop on like, actually we need to find the best of, How can we create the best interaction, the best design for the customer, and also meet time to market, um, you know, do with the resources that we have, all of those types of things. Then you start to see like, ah, okay, now I know how to curate my design to try and get the best outcome. You know, and I think like, you know, there is still value there. And like my hope, I mean, I don't know, maybe you're right, maybe... Maybe things will be different. Maybe it'll be product falling under design at some point. I don't know. You know. So, um, but I definitely think that there is a lot of overlap, which is why I think actually there is benefit in working together and why I think you get a, be- a good result because you already have something common to land on. So can a UX designer be a product manager? Absolutely. You know. I think that there are, like, there are skills to learn, but equally like, I think it would be a harder lift for me to be a uh, UX designer.
0: Do you think the dynamic there, in terms of the hard skills required, changes if you think about the next step up the ladder? So, when you start, when you start in the head of product or at the the true leadership end of product,
1: do the hard skills like well,
0: you got the day to day of the product manager's world, right? You know, mm-hmm. buried in the spreadsheets, looking at the roadmaps, prioritizing features, and hopefully doing a bit of customer discovery and research as well. But do you think that it would be an easier transition for a designer design leader to move into a product leadership role, uh, without having to go through the operational day to day of the PM role? Would they not have enough credibility in that role?
1: I think it depends on the designer. Like, I think I've seen a lot of very strategic UX designers. And I think uh, if a designer is in that vein and is really thinking like and in that vein, I think they are thinking about driving value and unlocking value for both customer and business. I think that that is that's probably someone of that ilk is probably makes an easier transition into those, that set. Like I do think that actually designers also are in spreadsheets. I've seen lots of UX designers in spreadsheets, looking at survey data, you know, looking, cutting data in different dimensions, looking at like, you know, product data as well. (laughs) No, no, I'm just saying like, I definitely think that like designers are not, uh, you know, I don't think that like, I don't think that We're, designers are not capable of being in the numbers.
0: Yeah, it's a that, that's a uh, a foolish limiting belief if designers actually do believe that. And I realise it's really difficult to talk about a whole discipline um, in general terms. So let's switch gears a little bit now and come to what it's like being an executive level leader. So specifically your CPO and CTO roles. You know, you've got the benefit in that position of the status that comes along with where you sit in an organization's hierarchy. Now, has moving into that executive or those executive roles, has that changed the way, you know, being the head, head honcho, has that changed the way in which you you interact with people in your team?
1: Uh, head honcho, I don't know about uh, that, but I, I I think you have a higher, like you have a stronger responsibility to support your team. And I think that is probably the fundamental responsibility is to help the business drive outcomes, but really support your team in being successful and unlocking opportunity for them. And I think that is the main thing that a leader uh, can provide is clarity of context and direction. Um, and uh, as well as like pathway to unblocking them, basically like, you know, you're the block and tackle or the block and tackle person. Right. And I think what I value about being in leadership. And the things that gives me the most joy is really seeing people succeed and really create like allowing people to reach their potential. Um, I think it's amazing with like when you give just enough guidance that someone is able to flourish or able to really embrace and, you know, feel that they can They can uh, embrace the challenge without fear of failure, you know, that they don't, that they have the right, just the right amount of support to see them succeed and just enough challenge each time to reach a little bit further uh, each time. And it's amazing to look back at someone who you maybe worked with for a number of years and see where they started and where they've become, you know, and see how much like they have worked towards that. I think it's a really rewarding, a really rewarding thing to see to be like, you know, just a small part of that growth, I think is, you know, I don't know, in in a leadership position, I feel is is probably the most rewarding thing.
0: It sounds like as you've gone higher in the organizations, there's less of a role for you to put forward your own ideas so explicitly, but you've adopted more of a I think you used the word guidance or guiding. There's more of that sort of coaching, setting the stage for other people and giving them just enough direction to to get on with what you need them to do.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you are responsible for setting the strategy, but that strategy is built in collaboration, right? And it's really just to align everybody to what our goals are as an organization and to align the wider organization, right? But I think like I am hugely reliant on my team to uncover the problems, to find those challenges and to communicate, hey, what should we fix? What is the most pressing thing and how will this help us, right? And to articulate that value so that we can come up with a cohesive plan as to like, hey, how do we want this to play out? How how do we want to um, support our customers? What's the most important thing to to um, provide. And I think in doing that, it's like stretching them by asking questions, right. And it's through that questioning that people, oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't think about it in that d- dimension. You know what I mean? So it's really about just providing enough challenge, but for the team to really be empowered to go and, and figure out like how we'll solve it. You know what the problems are, you might know what the problems are. You know, you think, you know, what you might need to solve, but you know, you're always surprised at like, actually, when you think this is the problem, actually, it's a symptom of another problem of a more important problem.
0: You spoke about how people won't always get it right. You know, we are humans, we do make mistakes. I also know that you're a proponent of radical candor, which can have mixed meanings uh, depending on on who's listening. I'm curious about that because I was wondering when you're practicing radical candor, what does your version or your version of good radical candor look like when something's, you know, when the wheels have fallen off or something's not really gone to plan?
1: Yeah, I think... There's two things there, right? Like, I think when things haven't gone to plan, I think you want to address, like, that first, right? And then I think you want to reflect and almost, like, have a retrospective on that, right? And then I think you're talking about, and I think one of the things about leadership, too, is providing enough guidance that, like, you know, that your team's failures or the individual failure isn't a big one. I think failure is actually... A positive thing in the sense that you learn from it. And I think the role of your leader is that people don't fail too bad like on on the things that are really important. You know what I mean? And so like you're providing enough support and guidance that people feel supported, that they have that you have their back. And at the end of the day, ultimately all the decisions and all the things that happen in my organization are my responsibility and our um, and the accountability lies with me at the end of the day. But I think if you know, we've gone down this pathway and we like, I think always with things that have gone incorrectly, you're always thinking of, you're always, your intent is is to think that everybody's worked as hard as they can and made the best decisions they can with the information that they had in front of them. So when things go wrong, what was wrong in the process that led someone to make a bad decision, right? So when I think when you can start from that place, then it's less about reprimanding somebody for an outcome, but really trying to understand why we led there. Now, if someone was negligent, then that's a different story. Then there is accountability, right? But I think if we're starting from the premise that everybody is working as hard as they can, as best they can, then you take a different perspective on it. Now that like with, with radical candor, it's really about, you know, perspective, right? Like I think in giving people feedback, like I think feedback is a gift given with good, if if it's given with good intent, then it's a gift because quite often I have blind spots and people have given me feedback and it's been really helpful, you know, and I think it's the way in which you give it and whether someone is actually ready and open to receive it. So I think you need to ask, like, I have some feedback for you today, Brendan, are you open to feedback today? You might say, no, I'm having a bad day. Can we talk about another day? And I'm like, okay. You know, and like, I think it's really about is the person in the right mood? Like if you had a really bad day and now I'm gonna, you know, give you some feedback that you might not be open to, like, is it worth me giving you that feedback, right? And I think with radical candor, like the name is pretty harsh, right? But I think like the thing that people miss is, is with empathy and with humanity and care for somebody. So it's not like I'm saying this to hurt you and I'm trying to take the personal out of it and maybe talk about the impact of the action. Right. And I think it's really not saying like, Brandon, you suck. You know what I mean? Because you did this thing and you made everyone feel horrible. Like, I mean, it's not talking about like trying to make someone feel bad. It's really about saying like, hey, you might have this, like here's my perspective. You might have this blind spot. And it's not saying, Brandon, you have to take it on board. It's saying like, hey, this is what I've observed. And it's up to you to decide whether that feedback is valid for you or not. That's how I sort of see feedback. You know, like you can see that and say like, yeah, you know what? I don't think that was given with good intent. I'm going to ignore it. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to take on board everything people tell you. But I think if you think about, like, did someone give me that feedback with good intent? And is it meaningful for me? And is that something I've observed in myself? And now someone's reflecting it back to me, you know, so... I think those are are things for for you to think about. But again, it's with humanity, right? So it's not intended to make you feel bad. It's intended for you to think about, you know, how you can elevate your performance or maybe the way your actions are perceived, which is not your intent. You know, I've had someone before when asked a question, shrug a lot, you know, and it was more in jest than it was. But what it was doing was giving people lack of confidence in their answer. So they would go and ask somebody else because they were kind of like, I don't know if they have it or not. So I'm just going to go and check, like ask somebody. And so, you know, when I gave uh, this person this feedback, I just said, you know, at, at that time, I was just saying like, hey, you know, I have some feedback for you today. Are you open to feedback? Yes. And I'll say like, you know, quite often I've noticed that when you're in a meeting, someone's asking you a question, you know, because of your, like, I've noticed that in your jovial nature, you'll shrug and you'll laugh it off but you haven't given a clear answer. And so what I've observed is that person's going to ask somebody else. And what that's creating is a lack of clarity in whether you have it or not. And I know you do, but, you know, what the impression it's giving is lack of confidence in somebody else. So you might want to just observe and see if you actually are doing that and seeing what the response is and maybe just taking on and sort of seeing, is that something that uh, you observe yourself? And if that's something that you want to change.
0: There is a lot to unpack there. In particular, I really like the way you set the stage by asking the question, are you ready to receive some feedback today or something of that nature? You know, this leadership thing is not an easy thing for most people. It's full of self-doubt and there's no guidebook really on how to do it well. So I feel like you've really shared some huge value there with that approach. And also it's an approach which sounded to me as one that's not putting you in a position where, as the leader, you're falling over yourself before you actually deliver the feedback, because sometimes that can be uncomfortable for people as well. Receiving feedback can be tough, but giving it equally can be tough as well. Uh, You shared with me offline, and I hope you don't mind me sharing online, you can tell me, we'll take it out if you you do, um, that you consider yourself introverted. And so, which personally, if you're looking at it through an outside in lens, is very difficult to see, particularly how well you articulate things like that giving feedback and in that work context how have you worked on yourself or who has helped you to see those blind spots that you've got or had in the past and become the the person that you are today that's comfortable or at least outwardly comfortable giving that kind of feedback to people because it's really easy for people listening to podcasts and seeing you know seeing you speak and do all these things to look at just the surface and not realize the what it appears to me at least to be a significant amount of energy and effort and investment in actually getting to this place where you are comfortable in in your own shoes
1: yeah i'm gonna have a big nap after this session
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> turn the phone off <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think just going to giving feedback it is hard. And I think the first time I ever gave feedback was really difficult. Like, I think I was really had a lot of anxiety because you really don't want to offend people. Like, your intent isn't, like, to make someone feel bad and, like, oh, I'm just going to tell them how they, they suck. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what you're trying to do. Like, if you're giving feedback for that reason, don't give it. You know, like, I mean, the intent of feedback is to help somebody. And, like, I think... You know, I think when, and giving feedback, I mean, like it was a culture that we had at PushPay about like radical candor and to being honest and giving feedback because feedback leads to to growth. And I think when you can think about like that, actually, I want to help you and I'm going to just give you some perspective. You don't need to take it on board, but some food for thought for you, you know, what I mean, and equally, I've, I've had that too, right? Because it was our culture, that you have to be open to feedback. And I'm open to feedback from my own team, about how I lead them, how I, you know, how I lead the team, how I maybe set the strategy, whatever, like, you have to be open yourself, if you're not open to feedback, what gives you the right to give the feedback, right? And so I think, like, you have to have that culture of like, this is, this is part of the way that we work. And my intent my intent is about care and 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 your growth, and not about like you know you feeling ashamed because it's not about that. And if it is about that, then there's no point to the feedback, right? So, in terms of who's giving me feedback, lots of people <laughs> because I ask for it at my one to ones. You know, also like you know I ask my team, do they have feedback for me? And if you do have feedback for me, feel. Please feel free to share it when you, when you feel ready for it. And that's hard because like sharing feedback with your manager is difficult. Who, who feels comfortable and safe to do that. Right. And so like, I think when people have given you feedback and you take it on board and you consider it and you make change, then people are more willing to give you more feedback, you know? And I think equally i have had feedback from engineering, had feedback from uh, engineering leaders. And I think one of the key points of feedback that I had And maybe why I seem a little bit more energetic is because I had feedback that actually I was a really bad storyteller and a really bad public presenter. And so it was something I ended up working on because I realized actually, yeah, I am really terrible at it. I read my notes. I can't go off script. Um, I think there was a time where I would not be able to have this conversation just knowing because it's being recorded, for example. And so I spent a lot of time actually trying to uh, improve my public speaking Improve more ad hoc conversations, being on more panels. You know, I was really nervous about I, and maybe I, I still am. I guess you know, nervous about what uh, people think about my perspective and you know, being judged. Everybody feels you know, some some well, some people feel insecurities around that, and I think that is that just a normal a normal thing. Um, particularly, I think more so if you're introverted, right? That. What you say is uh, you feel has meaning behind it and you worry about like how people perceive that. Um, so I did work on my public speaking for a long time. I started with uh, just internal talks. I pushed myself to do a mine, uh, sorry, a product tank because um, I was part of the product tank community to do a product tank panel, which I thought, OK, that might be easier. I roughly know the questions. It'll be okay, you know, then uh graduating to more and more increasingly more what seemed more daunting and more difficult uh public speaking engagements, leading to more public, in-present, on stage talks, which, you know, and even preparing today, I think, you know, there's a level of nervousness and anxiety, I think, that also comes with with uh yeah, with any any public speaking um opportunity.
0: Audrey, thanks for being so open and honest about how you're feeling even in this moment here with me on the show. Hopefully it hasn't been too nerve wracking. I am wondering, though, what has been possible for you in your life and your career, since you made that really conscious decision to work on improving your public speaking? What's happened that otherwise probably wouldn't have?
1: Yeah, I think I think it really helped me actually as a product manager, um, more like, I think more than anything, like it really helped me as I moved into more leadership level roles to really more clearly articulate my ideas, uh, to be a more, to have more compelling stories, I guess, in the way that I was trying to represent my group. And I think that has helped me more than anything is just to have confidence uh, a bit more confidence, no matter which group I was going into, and to be able to speak and represent my group, which I think, you know, like, every, like, when you're as a leader, you want to represent the amazing work of your team, right? And you, you believe you've got an amazing team, you know, that they're working hard, you want to tell, like, the wider organization how hard the team is working, what amazing things they're doing. And if you're nervous, you don't, you don't get across your points. Uh, And if you feel that, you know, you're struggling to articulate it, and I think public speaking has just really helped to help me to maybe curate my story to feel more comfortable being ad hoc, maybe be more of myself. Um, And I think that's, that's really helped a lot. I think just that preparation and that level of like, I'm going to do it anyways, like I feel scared about it, but I'm still going to do it. You know, I think that level um, just helps to prepare you for uh, wider conversations that you didn't realize and to give you more confidence in, in, in different forums.
0: Well, Audrey, it's been a real privilege to hear your story today. It's been such a refreshing conversation about the very real challenges that product leaders have, but also your unique insight into what it's like also leading the design organization. And I really wish you all the best for your new challenge, which is now also to have wrapped in engineering. You have finally got them all under one umbrella. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens at Imager for you there. So thank you for sharing your stories and your insights with me today.
1: Thank you so much, Brendan. It's been a great conversation and great to see you again as well. Hopefully we'll see each other in person soon.
0: I hope so. I hope so. It's been my pleasure. (laughs) Audrey, if people want to find out more about you and the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Well, I don't post a lot these days, but I think, you know, reach out, uh, have a coffee and yeah, have a conversation
0: okay I'll if you don't mind i'll put your linkedin profile at the sh- on the bottom of the show notes
1: yeah that sounds fine
0: perfect all right thanks audrey and to everyone else who's tuned in it's been great having you here as well everything we've covered will be in the show notes including where you can find audrey and all the great things that we've spoken about if you enjoy the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders and ux product and oh gosh i forgot my own outro ux product and design. Don't forget to leave a review, subscribe and tell someone else about the show if you feel that they would get some value out of these conversations. If you want to reach out to me, you can also find my LinkedIn profile on the show notes, or you can just Google me, uh, Brendan Jarvis, that'll take you through to some way that you can find me, or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's the thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave.